Psalm 24, verses 1 through 10. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we come to you this morning to honor you and to glorify you through your Son, whom you have set as your King. Not only the King of our lives, but the King of the world. Lord, as we focus the next, these next minutes into your word. Help us to think about our great King Jesus. And Lord, make us ready not only to receive the good food of your word, but also ready to receive him when he returns. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a story of a great, glorious, and powerful king who had set up a great banquet because a wonderful occasion had come, and that is that his son was about to get married. So the day had arrived. It was a momentous occasion. The, the servants are decked out in their finest attire. They're ready to receive the guests. They're ready to serve the guests. The food has all been prepared, and finally the king commands his servants to go. Go to the invited guests and tell them the time has come. The time has come to celebrate my son's wedding. So the servants go, knocking on the doors. And as each one opens the door, they let them know, it's time, it's time to come to celebrate the son's wedding. And each of the invited guests turn away the servants. Some spit on them. Some hit them. Some bully them. Saying, we have too much to do to care for the son's wedding. We have our own business to attend to. Others did not even give an explanation or reason for the lack of attendance. The servants all go to the king and tell them, What's happened? And the king, in his fury, in his outrage, takes his army and lays siege to the cities of all these invited guests who turned down the invitation. And then finally, 
Noticing that the banquet hall is empty, he tells his servants to go out into the streets, knock on the doors, go to the marketplaces, and invite all who would come. So they go to the streets, declaring, the son of the king is getting married. You're all invited to attend, and the people go to their houses, put on their attire, and go to the banquet hall, and it's filled with so many guests. People are laughing and enjoying themselves. There is food. As it was said in ancient times, there was great merrymaking. And the king is going about with a smile on his face, enjoying the guests, thanking them for coming, and then suddenly he notices one person in the crowd. He goes straight to this man, and he asks him, Good friend, why are you here without the proper attire? And the man is speechless. He has nothing to say. And so the king orders his servants to cast him out and severely punish the man. No, this is an overreaction on the part of the king. Why would, he be, why would this man be cast out of the banquet hall for simply not wearing the proper attire? And it has something to do with the worth of the king and his son. And it is this worth, this glorious worth, that we're called to consider this morning as we look at our passage this morning. The passage calls to lift up the gates, open the ancient doors. Why? Because the king of glory is coming in. And so who is this king of glory, the passage asks which is our first heading, the King of Glory. Who is this King of Glory? We see from the passage that this King of Glory is the King of Creation. It says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. It establishes from the very beginning that God is the creator of all things. It establishes the glory that comes, that is intrinsic as our community group learned last week in distinguishing the intrinsic glory of God and the ascribed glory of God, there's an intrinsic glory of the Lord that comes, we see here, from the very fact that God created all things. It establishes from the very beginning that there is no one higher than the Lord who created all things. In the Exodus account, in Exodus 9.29, Moses goes to Egypt and tells Pharaoh, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. God can command the thunder to cease and the hail to stop because he owns it all. Just as Jesus, when he's with his disciples out on the seas, and it's rocking and it's tossing because of the storm, Jesus commands it all to be silent because, and he can do so because, it all belongs to him because he created it all. It points to the full comprehensive possession of all things under the hand of God. You have authority over that which you create. You create something. It's up to you to do with it what you will. So in the same way, the Lord created it, so therefore he has authority over it. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The by him tells us that it was created by the Lord. The through him tells us the means or the manner in which the world was created, and that is through him, through the Lord. And then the for him tells us the great object, the right object of creation, namely, for the Lord. And it is these two words that gives the gives you the, the birth of atheism, I'm convinced, because it is these two words that people have a problem with. The fact that God created the world not primarily for man, as man being the center of the universe, no, but primarily God created the world for himself. It's because of these two words that sin ever came into the world because man cannot get around the fact that God created all things primarily for himself, for his own glory. He is the beginning of all things and the center of all things. It says he established it upon the rivers. He founded it upon the seas. In the scriptures, the seas and the rivers and the oceans symbolize that which is uncontrollable and that which is chaotic. And so when it says that God established the world upon the seas, it says that God controls the uncontrollable and creates order out of chaos. There is no other God like our God, and there is no other God besides our God. He is the king of creation. He's also the king of an eternal covenant. Verse 6 says, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Again, back in the Exodus account, when Moses is talking through God, to, to God, rather, as God reveals himself through the burning bush, and God identifies himself there, he says to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Several things we learn from just this one statement. Number one, that God is a covenantal God. He makes covenants. He makes promises. I mean, to think that the God of the universe, the one who has authority over all things, would actually bind himself through covenant. Not only that, but secondly, he makes covenant with man. And that it is through covenant that God establishes relationship, that rather than kicking man out of his presence completely and wanting nothing to do with man, and rather than just obliterating man because of his sin, instead God seeks to establish a relationship with man through covenants. And in this way, he also distinguished himself from the gods of Egypt, that he is not like the gods of Egypt or the gods of the world, but this is a God who is a very much a personal God. And through his covenant keeping, we also learn that he is a God who keeps promises. He makes these promises to man. He makes this promise 
to us through the gospel as a way of giving us an assurance that he will not ever leave us or forsake us because he binds his covenant upon himself. And by identifying himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God is also making a distinction here that he is not the God of everyone without exception. Now certainly he is the God, the creator of all things because he created all things so that even if you have yet, dear friend, to believe in Christ Jesus as Savior, he still is very much your creator and you belong to him. But the distinction here is that the God, that this God is a personal God only to some, namely to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and those who come from them. And even for those who come from their line, not everyone there is there, is not, does not have God as their personal God, but as we learned in Galatians, that those who are the true children of Abraham are those who are of faith faith in Christ Jesus. It's a king of an eternal covenant. And he's also the king of the armies of heaven. Over and over again, from 7 to 10, it says, the king of glory, the king of glory, who is this king of glory? Strong and mighty, mighty in battle. He is called the Lord of hosts. And perhaps... This particular section is intended to point back to the Ark of the Covenant that housed the Ten Commandments, the Ark of the Covenant that had the lid upon which were the cherubims that, pointed, that faced each other with the wings pointing to each other with a space in between. And that space in between the cherubim was understood to be where the presence of God dwelt. It was also intended to represent the throne of God that his rule and his sovereignship over the people of Israel came from this space. And when in 1 Samuel, the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the battlefield, when the Israelites are fighting against the Philistines, the understanding was that God has come into the battlefield, that God has come to war, that God has come to fight the enemies of his people. The Lord of hosts means that he is, the arm, he is the general of the armies of heaven. So when David fights Goliath, when he comes into the battlefield, and he says to Goliath, you come to me with your sword, and you blaspheme the name of a God, my God, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. He says he doesn't fight alone, but there is the army of God standing by his side fighting with him. Isaiah 31, verse 4 says, For thus the Lord said to me, As a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, the lion, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Certainly, we love the God of Psalm 23. We want that God. We need that God who is our shepherd, who makes us lie down by green pastures, who restores our souls. But we also want the God who fights. We also want the God who is described as a man of war, 
we also want the God who knows how to command the legion of the armies of heaven on behalf of his people. It says over and over again, lift up the heads, open the doors, open the ancient doors. And the idea is that the king has come. And the king has come in victory. And the idea is, let us receive the king with joy and gladness and celebration. Like when King Saul and David came back from the battlefield and entered Jerusalem, the doors were open and people were celebrating and the women were dancing. There was joy and there was celebration. So in the same way, this is what it's communicating, that the king has come, he's come in victory. Let us rejoice and let us celebrate. For the king of glory has returned. His glory... Not that he needs to add any more glory to himself, but now his glory is even further, that's even possible, by the fact that he has been victorious over the enemies of his people. And so the doors are opened, the king is invited in, and there is joy and gladness, and it is a presence that res- commands respect and honor and celebration and expects nothing less. I mean, could you imagine if a general, if a king came into his city, he's on his way, the watcher on the tower sees the king coming. As the people know downstairs, hey, open the gates, the king's coming. All right, they open the doors. The king comes riding in upon his horse, proud, with his armies behind him, with his captives trailing behind, with the spoils of war coming as well intended to be dispersed amongst the people, and nobody seems to care. People are just in their, their own conversations. People are still buying and selling the marketplace. People notice, oh, there's the king. So anyways, how was your day? The people are trying to take a nap, are trying to close their windows because they're trying to take a nap, and they can't because of the galloping of the horses. Nobody seems to care. Right? Such a reception would be a disservice to the respect the king commands. Such a reception would be a disregard for the victory that the king has claimed on behalf of his people. Such a reception would be a dishonor to the glory that is due his name. Such a reception would be a dismissal of the spoils of war that the king has come to share with his people. Then the question is, if Christ Jesus, our King, were to come today, would we be ready to receive him? Or might you be thinking to yourself, Jesus, if only could you wait another week, I have my vacation coming up. Could you wait until I achieve this? Could you wait until I have this promotion at work? Could you achieve? Could you wait until this happens? It would be really great if you could just delay your return. Right, let us not be found with that kind of reception. Let us not be found with the kind of reception that dismisses or dishonors the glory of the king. But let us be ready to receive him. Let us be ready to celebrate that our great king, the one who has gone before us, the one who has fought against the devil and has destroyed the heavenly hosts that are against his armies and his people, 
has already decimated them at the cross. Let us be ready to rejoice and celebrate whenever the king returns. Speaking of which, the passage also tells us who are the kind of people that are ready to receive the king. Secondly, those who are ready to receive the king are those who seek the face of God. Verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. This speaks to a kind of innocence, but not this horizontal innocence, not innocence necessarily in the eyes of man and the eyes of the law, but speaking most importantly to a vertical innocence to where the Lord sees you as innocent because you've been dressed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What it speaks to is a, a consistency between the inner person and the outer person. Right? Is there a direct highway from the mind to your heart and to your actions, or is it a highway that, that goes around in circles and goes in this way and that so that there is this vast distance between your mind and your heart and your actions. But instead it ought to be a direct highway from one to the other and displaying itself in the right manner. For you and I as men, we have a tendency to judge the heart by another's actions. And sometimes we're wrong. But God, on the other hand, God judges the actions of the man by his heart. So that even if the actions are good, God can determine that they are not so if the heart is not in the right place. If there's pride, there's arrogance, if it's perhaps sinfully driven, this very idea that Jesus gets at in Matthew 6.1. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. The practicing of righteousness, while looks good outwardly and might produce good results at the end of the day, they are not considered to be righteous acts because they are not coming from the right heart. The sponge of outward actions, as noble and as virtuous as they might be, can do nothing to cleanse the heart from the filth of sin. Only Christ Jesus and the gospel can do that. And only when the heart has been sanctified by the gospel can we then practice our righteousness in the right way. The clergyman and theologian William Plummer in the 1800s had once said that morality without religion is but a smooth way of descending to hell. And what he means there by religion is not a superficial religion, not a religion that's just mainly about works and nothing more, but a religion that concerns itself with living under the fear of the Lord. A religion that concerns itself with living one's entire being to the glory of God. Now, 
Matthew 6, 5. By the way, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives Matthew 5 through 7. It's intended to communicate what kingdom living is like. And you can sort of see that as an extension of this passage when you consider who are the people who are, who are the kind of people who are ready to receive the king. Consider what it says in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Two different categories of people are told to us here in this passage. What's the difference? One is seeking the face of man, and the other is seeking the face of God. The one who's not honored, the one who will not have a reward from their heavenly Father who is in heaven, is the one who seeks the face of man. Who seeks prestige, status, who seeks the attention of man. The other one, on the other hand, the truly religious one, is the one who seeks the face of God. I love what Jesus says about Philip. When he's first introduced to Philip, he says about Philip, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. In other words, here's a man that what you see is what you get. There's no cutting corners here. This is a person who is not going to be shy about telling you what it is. And as such, the Lord is looking for his people to be able to say something to similar effect. Behold, here's a Christian indeed, with whom there is no deceit. What you see is what you get. There's no shadow in this person. There's no hiding of anything. A true Christian indeed. Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The one who is truly religious is the one who seeks the face of God. They are the ones who will receive the reward, and that is they shall see the face of God. Which begins with a purity of heart, which again comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's not enough to just be a moral person or an ethical person. You must be a truly religious person. But on the other hand, there is a grievous lie of the devil that one can be religious without morality. To do the right things, religious, religion-wise, but yet live a life that is totally contrary to the religion you supposedly hold to. Right, I certainly, I personally know what that is like. Doing church, going to church, serving in church, day after week after week, year after year, thinking that I was saved, but I certainly was not saved. If you looked at my life outside of the church, this is not a true Christian indeed. And perhaps there are some of you here that were very similar. But praise be to God that that is no longer your life. The Lord has saved us 
so that there then is this consistency between our transformation of our heart and our outward actions. The men or women with moral outward behavior produced by a sanctified heart by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is well on their way to beholding Christ. And they're also well on their way to glory. A true Christian indeed. So who are the ones who are ready to receive the Lord? These are the ones who have a consistency about them, a harmony about them because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are also those with a singular devotion. Who is the one who will stand in his holy place? He who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. The word false there in the Hebrew is actually a word that means empty. It is the same word that we see in one of the commandments of the Lord, in the Ten Commandments. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Do not take the Lord's name as empty. In other words, treat the name of God with substance, with weightiness, because it isn't empty. And this same emptiness is connected in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament well, to, to idols, to the worship of idols, to idolatry. In other words, the worshiping of what is false, the giving of one's life to what is false, to the pursuit of one's life, the singular devotion to that which is false or empty. These, the scriptures would say that these are lies. The essence of a lie is that it has no substance. It's empty. And this is the essence of idolatry. The essence of idolatry is the worship of that which is empty. Things that are considered empty are those things that make these wonderful promises, but they fail to deliver. Not only that, but those things that are considered empty are those that make promises and can deliver, but only for a limited time. It is the pursuit of these things that is the sure mark of heathenism. The passage speaks to the kind of person that gives himself to that which is substantial, to that which is weighty, especially in comparison to everything else in the world that we could be pursuing that are compared to waterless clouds, a nicely packaged gift that when you open it, it's actually, there's no content, it's empty, there's nothing like empty treasure chests or wells that eventually run out of water. The kind of person that gives his life to that which is worth his life is the kind of person who seeks ultimately the face of God. And to help us, Jesus gives us some parables in the Gospels. He tells us the parable of the treasure in the field, that a man who once found treasure in the field he found it, dug it all back up, and then went back to his home and sold all that he has in order to have the treasure that is in the field. And why would he do that? Because he considered that one is weightier than the other. And he says, I will gladly give up everything that I have in this hand in order to get this. Because this is much more substantial. 
Jesus also tells us the parable of the pearl of high value, that there was a man looking for pearls of high value, and he finds the one of great worth, and he goes back and he sells all that he has to have just this one pearl. Why would a person give up everything that they have for one item? Because this person has considered, well, when you put these two things in the balance, all of his possessions in this one pearl, this pearl outweighs everything that he has on the other hand. And Jesus compares these things to the pursuit of the kingdom of heaven. That he who finds the kingdom of heaven has found a great treasure worth his life. And so Jesus says, give up your life and follow me. Because the pursuit of him, seeing the face of Christ, having the kingdom of heaven as your possession is worth anything, more worth than anything that you can have in this life. So those who will see the face of God, those who will stand in his holy hill, are those who give themselves to that which is substantial, and that is the pursuit of God. Those who shall see the holy place of the Lord and see the face of God are those who ascend the mountain. They are the ones who will reach the summit and get there. It is those with a wholehearted devotion to the Lord, maintaining consistency between their heart and their works. That if you desire the Lord, do you desire the Lord? Then climb the hill. It's an uphill climb. And you show it by your actions. You put to practice your righteousness that you have through faith in Jesus Christ. And the reward is that you will be a partaker of righteousness perfected in Christ Jesus. And to help you, you have the spirit of the living God. Perhaps this past week, the uphill climb has been pretty challenging for you. Or perhaps this week will be challenging than the one before. That's why you have the helper to energize you for the work. To help you, to encourage you, to strengthen you in this uphill climb. I'm always amazed by those in church history who attempt great things for the Lord. Whether it's giving their lives, their pursuit of evangelism to those who have not heard it before, whether it's establishing orphanages or schools in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm always amazed and encouraged by such stories. These are men and women who have dared to risk everything because they have faith in the God who is with them, the God of the armies of heaven. They know that they have a God who stands with them and has promised to never leave them or forsake them, and, makes, and that makes them very bold and very daring. But before anyone should ever attempt great things for the Lord and ever attempt to risk great things for the cause of Christ, let them first be faithful in the ordinary means of grace that God has given to each one of us. We climb up the hill. We pursue the faith of God by devoting ourselves to the Word, reading the Word diligently, faithfully, 
praying faithfully and diligently. And perhaps adding to that the other means of grace that God has given to the church, meditating, memorizing the scriptures, fasting, spending time in silence and solitude with the Lord. These are the ordinary means that God has given to us by which we can ascend the hill each and every day, making strides, inching closer and closer and closer to the summit, the day that we reach that summit and behold the face of Christ. And to our encouragement, we've been given the Psalms of Ascent, beginning in Psalm 120 and on. The Psalms of Ascent, the Psalms of Up. These are the Psalms, the songs that, Israel, that the Hebrew pilgrims would sing on their way to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. And what are we but Christian pilgrims, sojourners, strangers on this world? The Psalms of Ascent deserve our attention. These are the songs that have been given to our lips to encourage us, to remind us that this isn't our home, but our home is above. And that is what we seek. And throughout the challenges, we have these songs to sing to ourselves, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to remind us that we have a God on our sides, our side who has not left us, and will not forsake us, and that he is the great general of the armies of heaven. This is the kind of people that will stand on the hill and will also be ready to receive the king. So again, the question is, are you ready to receive the king? You perhaps probably picked up that on the story I shared earlier, it's actually a, Jesus, a story that Jesus shares in the Gospels. The king put on a banquet to celebrate the wedding of his son. The invited guests don't show up. So then the invitation is extended to the undeserving. Go and tell everyone you can find of the king's son and his wedding. And then in the great banquet, there's one man without the proper attire captures the attention of the king and is cast out because he does not wear the proper attire. Right? Again, is it an overre- overreaction of the king? And I would say it isn't an overreaction on the part of the king. Why is that? Because everyone who's come has been invited to celebrate the son's wedding and to honor the son is to honor the king is to honor the Father. And so one's dress communicates something about what they think about the one who's deserving of honor. I don't mean to offend anyone in what I'm about to say. I don't understand. Perhaps if you were a groomsman, you were told what you were you were told what to do. That's fine. That's understandable. But I just don't understand the wearing of sneakers by the groom at a wedding. And perhaps you've done that. That's fine. That's well and good. It just to me, it communicates to me two different things. Is this a formal occasion or is this a casual occasion? Right. You would never go to a wedding, you know, wearing a t-shirt with shorts and sandals. 
right? Because it's a formal occasion. And because you want to pay honor or respect to the one who's getting married. Otherwise, you're going to stick out. Everybody's going to notice that you're underdressed. And perhaps it's an exception for like a beach wedding. But your dress communicates something. And so you dress up for a formal occasion like that because you want to honor and you want to respect the occasion. This isn't an everyday occasion. Now, it's not every day that you know somebody is going to marry who's we have a man and woman coming together in holy matrimony and covenanting together. That doesn't happen all the time. And so it is an occasion worth celebrating. And it's an occasion worth honoring. And so the man who was in this banquet and was cast out by the king for not wearing the proper attire was cast out because he displayed that he was not honoring the king's son. He approached the event with a kind of laxity, with a casualness. One day, our King Jesus will come. The scriptures assure us of this. Dear friend, if you are found to not be wearing the proper attire when our king comes, an attire that only comes to you through faith, then you will suffer a similar fate like that man who was found at the banquet without the proper attire. You'll be cast out from the presence of the king forever into the place of darkness, into the place of gnashing of teeth and the fiery judgment of the Lord. Pray and hope that you may not be found without the proper attire when the king returns. Be dressed in the proper attire by turning your faith to the Lord Jesus Christ and submitting your life to him as your king. Those who are ready have on the proper attire. For those who are in faith, you need not worry. As long as you continue in faith, as long as you're living in that harmony between your heart and your actions, sanctified heart that produces these right actions before the Lord, you will always be wearing the proper attire. The king's return in our reception, ladies, will be likened to your wearing the most formal and elegant dress and shoes with your hair done ready to receive the king and in your dress, praying, paying honor and glory to the king that is worthy of his honor and glory. When the king returns, men, our reception would be like, whether or not you like to wear suits or not, will be decked out in a three-piece suit. A suit that shows the great honor and dignity and the glory of the king. And you cannot hire a seamstress or a tailor to stitch this together. You cannot purchase it anywhere. It only comes to you through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in that attire, when Christ Jesus returns, you'll be ready to rejoice and celebrate. Isaiah 51, 6, Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look to the earth beneath, for the heavens 
vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be displayed. Every other work of man, every other accomplishment, every other achievement of man will come to nothing. The only work that out, will outlast all those things and endure unto eternity is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it's through that work that Jesus went to the gates of death so that the gates of the kingdom of heaven might be opened to you and I. And in this we rejoice and celebrate. And to that end, as we look forward to the day of the king's return, ready to receive him, ready to celebrate, let us continue in the work of the Lord. Let us continue to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Let us continue to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray for the salvation of the lost, that those that whom we hold dear, that those that we desire to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that they may come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ soon before Christ returns. Let us be fervent in these things. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let us pray. Jesus, you are our King. Lord, and it is, it is a joy. It is our honor. It is our privilege to be able to serve you here in this life. You have saved us through the work of redemption. You have subjected the principalities in the heavenly places that were set against us. You put the devil himself on a leash. And in your cross and in your resurrection, you have declared your victory and the consummation of your victory when you return. Lord, we look forward to the day. It is our joy to sing of your, of your royalty, to sing of your work on our behalf. For as long as we live in this life, let us rejoice and celebrate you as our great King. And may we be found ready when you return. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.